Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the pharma and biotech ecosystem with Gordon Nicholson, Director in the Life Sciences Business Unit at Excite. So who is my guest today? Gordon has more than 30 years of experience in the design and construction of life science facilities from research to commercial production. He has worked on projects in Asia and the US for both local and global customers in the pharma and biotech space. His responsibilities include leading the life science concept design team in the Asia Pacific region, support to clients other business development and technical review, process and documentation prior to them being issued to clients. He has a crazy amount of experience and uh, a bit of a huge global outlook as well. I'm sure you're going to enjoy today's conversation. And thank you as always for listening and for being here with us. And if you haven't given us a nice kind rating on the App Store, then please do so today and maybe share today's episode. Uh, with a friend or a colleague or someone that you think will benefit from today's content. Enjoy this interview with Gordon. Gordon, welcome to Molecule to Market. Thank you, Roman. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. Pleasure is all mine. Uh, we haven't had many Aussies on the show in the last few years, so I get very excited given I lived in Sydney for a while early on in my in my life. So it's good to hear the accent and get you on today's show. So let's start at the start. You have a pretty uh, decorated career, lots of achievements. Um, so, you know, talk our listener through your kind of backstory and rewind the clock and tell us how you got into the sector and ultimately uh, to where you are today in your current role. Sure. Um, well, I guess I, I started off uh, when I graduated doing uh, oil and gas and, and I graduated actually as, a, as an architect. Uh, but moved into a very non-traditional field, which was uh, highly complex facilities with lots of risks. And it was just something that got me interested. And uh, then after working in that industry for a few years, I, I decided to experiment in various different types of architecture from housing to hospitals to commercial, and then got back into designing laboratories and uh, GMP, so good manufacturing practice facilities for the manufacturing of pharmaceuticals. And that captured my attention because it was really a process of assembling a very complex jigsaw uh, into the best possible arrangement without necessarily having a, a guiding picture to tell you how it's supposed to look. And I was going to ask you about jigsaws, but I'll, I'll hold that thought for a minute <laughs> and talk us through some of the kind of the roles that you've had along the way, particularly in the, in, the, in the pharmaceutical sector and what those roles have looked like and what they've entailed. So I started off really just a regular architect working on projects and uh, developing designs. And at one stage, uh, as, as I worked through a couple of big projects, including a large project for GSK for GlaxoSmithKline in Tianjin in China, my boss turned to me and said, can you go up to China for three months? So I jumped on a plane with two suitcases and went up to China to fix a project that had gone astray for another company and uh, we'd been asked to get involved. So that started my, my great adventure 
because that three months ended up turning into 24 years being based in uh, China and Singapore and doing a lot of travel around the world as I did this and also working from being a regular architect to gradually expanding the business from me to 40 other people and becoming really a, a general manager by default and learning a whole lot of the skill sets that were needed to to be that person without really having any specific training at that point in time. So uh, I, I kind of wandered into an, this entrepreneurial role of growing a company and developing a set of skills that I've never really been trained for. Eventually, I went out and decided it's about time I do some more learning. So I went to uh, a college in uh, in Shanghai and China and studied a diploma in management just to get myself up to speed with what I should be doing and, and how I validate decisions that I was making. So I had this really sort of fun career for 12 years of transitioning from a regular role to this uh, totally morphed uh, role of sitting in a BD chair and a general manager's chair and reviewing the finances and employing people that I'd never really thought about. And how did you find that transition then, if if you just take a pause point there? It, it's it's something that we see time and time again on the podcast where you've got someone that comes from a technical profession, obviously, you know, architecture in your case, and then ends up doing a, a more rounded business or commercial role. So what was that transition like, notwithstanding the fact I'm going to ask you about, obviously, a big chunk of it was in Asia. <laughs> I'm sure that was a learning curve as well. But how did you how did you kind of make that transition? Well, the, the transition, I guess, at the start was fairly soft because it was it was really that I found a few projects to do, so I I started doing them, and and as I earned money and it went into the into the bank account in China, I I had then had money to employ people, so we made decisions to bring those people on. But at that time, the company I was working for hadn't invested in setting up a, a formal business, so I had borrowed a license from another. Australian company that happened to be there but wasn't using it as a consulting business and that sort of took part of the worries of doing financial uh, reporting etc away from me because they are an accounting firm so they did all of that part and I paid them for doing that but the transition for me was really in learning how to manage people and being a detail-oriented person as an architect where you want to dig into every single little detail and figure out how everything should look, and it's a very natural sort of architectural and engineering trait, to having to sit back and say, you know what, I've just got to let other people learn and do it their way. And if it's not wrong, but it's not the way I do it, I had to sort of step back from it and let it ride. And I think the other transition that really was a learning curve for me was how to manage people and, and teams as they grew bigger. And a lot of that I had really gathered from sort of my earlier days of being heavily involved in the sports of rowing and sailing, which are extremely team orientated because the sailing boats were one ton yachts. So they typically have 10 people or so sailing on board. And I was rowing in, in eights. So you really have to work very, very much hand in hand with everyone that's around you to make the boat perform. 
And I realized I had to take some of that learning into how I manage staff and how I develop the teams. I love that, by the way, because I'm a massive believer in you can take learnings from things like sports and apply them to your career as well. I, you know, I see my kids playing in sports teams, learning skills around organization and leadership and teamwork and team spirit and all these things which are become essential components when you get into a, a career. So it's interesting to hear that. And so, so where does your career go from here? And obviously this is, this seems like the the initial inroad into the Asian market, in particular China, which we're going to come back to talk about. But you, you then, from what I understand, spent a big chunk of your career in that part of the world. Yeah. So uh, after spending uh, 12 years with that one company, uh, I also realized I'd probably made a, a little bit of a mistake. And after having spoken to quite a few other people, it seems I wasn't the first to have made that mistake. But by working in, in Asia for this sort of uh, extended period of eight to 10 years and going back to, to Australia to talk to the bosses, you know, for maybe four times a year, I disconnected myself to a lot of that decision making. And, and the bigger I grew the company, the more nervous they got because as the owners, they always wanted to sort of have a finger on the pulse, but they didn't want to live in China. So uh, I realized it was about a point in time that I needed to transition myself out of there because over time, their level of trust in me running a 40-person office when they'd seen me leave Australia as a, as a regular architect wasn't the same. So I jumped out and I uh, just decided to take a break for six months, actually. So I went around and caught up with friends in different parts of the world, in, in London, in uh, Canada, and across Europe, and then came back and decided what did I want to do do next. So that then transitioned into opening a small consulting business with a few friends after a lot of the clients that I'd been working for kept talking to us saying, why don't you open your own business because we'll use you. So we, we did that, developed that business and sold that after 18 months, mainly because the business evolution that we got into very easily was purely laboratories. And that business was going very well, but I really wanted to get back more into doing uh, manufacturing facilities, large-scale manufacturing facilities. And I had a couple of clients chase after me to do that. So with the two partners that I had on board in that business, I, I sold my shares to them and allowed them to, to continue that business on, which it still exists today and is still, still growing. And... I jumped into doing some work directly as a consultant to Sanofi in China, who were doing several projects at the time. And really, I would say at, at that point, it was a bit of a firefighting role because they phoned me on the day that I was signing the contract to sell the business and said, we need some help. I said, you want the, some help from my business or you want some help from me? And they said, no, just from you. So uh, two days a week turned into full time for about 18 months working with them on solving some problems on two projects they had. Then I moved into working for a company called Nova Nordisk Engineering, which is a spin-off of Nova Nordisk in Denmark, which is the largest insulin producer in the world for diabetes. So for me, that was a, a great opportunity because they headhunted me down looking for somebody that knew how to manage staff, especially in the Asia region and and when they'd talked around to the various teams uh, my name had kept coming up 
So I got brought on board and at the time I came on board, they had a turnover of staff of 35% year on year. So it was a complete disaster for them. And after getting on board, I started to see that pretty much everyone, all the different groups inside the organization were a little bit siloed. And it, it took a few years. Uh, it took us four years, but we got the turnover down to around about 10 to 12% by the end of that time frame. And focusing on what did people need and how to build them into teams and going back through those lessons that I'd learned when I was first setting up the business. So that was an interesting challenge and quite a bit of hard work at the time, but very rewarding and working with some great people, but who'd just never been coached into how they could perform as a team. I want to just underline and zoom in a little bit on that point there around silos, because I think a lot of people listening to today's interview will resonate with that irrespective of the size of business whether it be a a big corporate beast or a fast-growing business that starts to spin out departments and departments are not talking to each other i suppose it would be great to get your perspective on how you helped unlock some of the potential in that business and how you helped break down some of those silos just with the i suppose with an eye on i imagine other people listening will We'll be in similar positions. It happens in in all projects that I've ever worked in that that people kind of silo themselves a little bit, some more, some less. Uh, in this case, the the silos were very strongly driven around certain groups feeling like they were the most important thing for any of the projects, so that everyone else kind of had to treat them as a king or a queen. And we kind of had to get people to this realization and understanding that. It's a little bit like, and in China, I couldn't really describe rowing or sailing. So I started looking at European football, especially with the boys. With the girls, it took a a little bit of a different tactic. But for the boys, it was sort of talking to them about, you know, you see these footballers just running with the ball along the sideline and all of a sudden they kick the ball backwards at 45 degrees and it goes directly to this player on their side. How did that happen? And you had to explain to them that, They were communicating. These guys were communicating all the time with each other, even if they didn't like each other. And I said, you know, some of these players, they they trash talk each other. They don't don't like, you know, playing with the other person. But when they're on the field, they're professionals. So we had to talk with the team and, and build up that set of trust in each other. And starting to realize that if they worked more closely together, it became easier. And then some other parts of it was about me investing both time-wise, but also uh, I pretty quickly discovered that, you know, for example, for the type of work they were doing, their computers were just a little bit dated and didn't have the right, you know, background. So they were sitting there feeling frustrated. Some of these things were super easy to fix up. Buy some more memory, buy some more memory for 80 computers. Okay, done. That took five five minutes and an argument with the IT guy. And instead of people waiting five minutes for their computer to do a process, it was taking 30 seconds now. Other parts were just more about humanizing the workplace. So uh, we were buying fruit and putting it in the canteen area so that everybody knew we cared about them. And that costs next to nothing again, but the effect it had on people was very strong. Yeah, it's incredible actually just listening to your assessment it's it's not rocket science and I I clearly don't mean that in a a disparaging way but some of the kind of basic things around communications and trust and 
almost having your teams back and you know looking like you care for them not looking actually genuinely caring for them and i think sounds like there's lessons there for everyone right that you know to to build that trust and to avoid silos is just some of the basics yeah exactly and i think we all like to know that our boss or our colleagues have our back for us and and i think that's important for for everyone to to have that feeling so we we worked along those lines not just myself but also i had i was lucky enough at the time to have another couple of managers that came in at a similar time to help transition this so we made a plan we executed that plan we did simple things like asking hr to put on our calendars everyone's birthday now these days it's a little bit hard to do that because that's privacy rules but on someone's birthday i'd walk up to them or send them a message if they were somewhere else in the country just wishing them a happy birthday you know very simple but it was a, it was acknowledgement of people as being people you're listening to molecule to market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. And before we come on to Excite, and I want to know what took you to Excite, you've mentioned clients a few times and projects. And I suspect some of our listeners engaged in listening to your experience and thinking, well, what what does Gordon actually do? <laughs> you know, What does a project and what does a client look like? So talk us through... And, my assumption is this is what you do at Excite is along the same lines of what you've done for a while now. But talk us through, you know, you mentioned when Gordon's the guy to come and save the day. <laughs> you know, what what is that project? What is that client? What does that problem typically look like that requires a Gordon to come and help, you know, f- resolve it, fix it, take it to the next level? I think when projects hit trouble is when people look for senior people. So uh, my, my role as, as a director in the last couple of companies is also as a subject matter expert. So it's, it's looking at what's gone wrong in a project and finding the solution. So the clients I'm working with are all biopharma life science clients. So they're producing anything from headache tablets through to uh, the mRNA COVID vaccines, through to cell and gene therapy products. So that's the focus point. And as I mentioned before, things like uh, Nova Nordisk with insulin when I was working with uh, NNE. So these, these are the kinds. The projects I typically reflect into or work on tend to be not a standard, you know, Panadol headache facility, for example, because the oral solid dose facilities today are very much a known product in the sense that a a lot of people have experience in this area. What I fall into today is controlled access facilities or controlled process facilities. So it could be facilities that have anti-cancer medicines in them. It could be facilities that have biological products in them where you have to manage the safety of the product and the safety of the person that's working on that product and avoid contamination to both of them because the product can actually kill the person that's working on it and the person can contaminate the product and kill a patient. So there's a direct focus on how you handle the facility, how you move people and products through the facilities when you design them, how you prevent any sort of contamination coming from 
inside to outside and vice versa from outside to inside. So these facilities, for me, this goes back again to, to what I mentioned earlier, this complex jigsaw of, of working out what should a new facility look like, especially when we start to talk about products like mRNA or cell and gene therapy facilities. They're a different manufacturing process to what we had before. They're something that the regulators are looking at, but are often following a footstep or so behind what's happening with the industry and watching what the industry is also doing. And there's an advice and a, and a sort of, let's say, a swapping of ideas between both as they try and work out what is the safest approach to these new facilities. How can we achieve the best of both worlds for both the manufacturing and for the protection of the public that's going to use those products? So these today are the types of projects that I get involved heavily in. Ideally, I'm not a firefighter. I tend to be, as a subject matter expert, I tend to be much more involved at the very front end of a project, meaning that when a client comes up with you know, an idea that, hey, we want to build a new facility over uh, in Turkey, okay, how are we going to execute? What does that facility look like? They might have an idea of a product portfolio of some different medicines and the process that they use to manufacture those. And then we'll start with, well, this this is how the facility could look. We'll start at the design of the facility, how it transitions, how materials come in and out, how people come in in and out of the facility, how you manage quality testing and develop that into a, a site master plan but also a feasibility study or a business case that then they can walk back up to their board to get approval for funding to go ahead and then take those designs into a concept design where we flesh out a lot more detail into the design and also a more accurate budget for them. And then as the project goes into the detail design phase, which is for construction, I tend to step backwards and just come in as the team needs me to support specialized areas uh, or some problems that might come up that they needed a new design solution to. So you're very much there for the planning and design of such facilities, you know, I suppose in that blueprint phase, is that a correct assumption? Yeah, very much the early on the business planning and business structuring phase of the project and very little time at the back end of the project when it goes into construction, for example, uh, because typically if we've done our job properly at the front end, then they never need us near the back end. They're happy. If something's mucked up along the way, then then I get a call and say, this didn't work, either from our team or from the client sometimes. But uh, hopefully you don't get many of those calls. <laughs> and I suppose, I suppose it's a great time to ask you about excite and the organization that you work for today so tell us a bit more about what the business does and also what attracted you you know a man in demand for this area of expertise what was it about excite that you know you decided to come and, and be part i think it was four or five years ago now of their life science division and now a director um, just in case some of our listeners haven't heard of the company or have an understanding about what what they actually do yeah, so Excite, it's a global business uh, with a head office based in Germany. It's essentially a, a design and construction business with a focus on several key areas. One is data centers, one is the semiconductor industry, 
And the third sector is what I work in, which is the biopharma and life sciences area. The biopharma life sciences area is one of our growth areas, and that's one of the things that attracted me to come and work with Excite, along with the fact that, funnily enough, some of my good personal friends uh, work for Excite already before I came to join them. So they were people that I socialized with, went scuba diving with, had a beer with on the weekend, whatever it might be. So it was a very comfortable sort of environment to transition into doing something new. And the role was a more of a regional role for me, covering the Asia Pacific area and still doing that today, except even even more broadly across a global area. We have obviously operational supports in uh, Europe, in the US, in Singapore and China, India. So we're quite a broadly spread company with well over 8,000 employees and and heading towards the 10,000 employees globally. And I guess the big differences for me with Excite compared to who I had worked for previously, most of my previous companies were very much purely design focused and didn't really go into the construction stage. Uh, Excite is probably more heavily construction stage oriented, but building the design team heavily. They still do a lot of design with a lot of designers, but it wasn't focused as much on the front end phase. And being able to work for a company that can and, and does do the complete delivery solution for our clients gives you this opportunity to watch all of your ideas morphing into reality and going back and seeing it when when the operation starts up. Whereas often when we were doing designs as a pure design company, you might only do the front design section, which we call concept, or even into detail design, but you may never see the construction sometimes. So this, this gives an opportunity just to see a little bit more of the picture and to be involved. And obviously Excite is a significantly larger company than the, the previous employers I worked for who were varying between uh, 500 people and, and 2,000 people, 2,500 people globally. So that that opportunity of working in a, in a bigger network was also of interest. It's interesting. And I think what you know one of the things we always try to do on the podcast is bring interesting people and interesting companies to the podcast and excite very much fits in that bracket to me in that you know it's not necessarily a household name certainly that i'm i've been aware of and yet you know the company has sales of over seven and a half or seven billion uh, euros which is quite astounding so kind of not a surprise that this was a business where you could really kind of spread your wings and, and excel so let's focus on asia for a bit because one of the reasons i was really excited to have you on the podcast was your experience in the Asian market has been second to none, you know, that versus most, particularly from the Western world, that have spent that much time in Asia. So two questions for you to ponder over. The first is, you know, I love your general thoughts on some of our listeners are sitting here thinking, you know what, we want to increase our presence in Asia. We want to increase our footprint. We may want to do more business in Asia. You know, any advice on how you would suggest they go about doing that that's kind of question one and part two is given you've spent the bulk of your career dealing with the asian market just your take on 
how the the market is developed in the last 20 years or so so if you reflect back into you know that role that you went in that you mentioned at the start you went to china you know two decades ago or so versus how it looks now it would be good to give our listener a bit of the kind of compare and contrast of how quick that market is is evolving sure Alan. look I, I might start with you second first and take it in a couple of steps i think the first experience for me was when my boss asked me to go to china i re- I, I love travel and i've traveled to over 40 countries around the world and grown up in Thailand as a kid with my father traveling and working there. So I was always interested with cultures and people. So when I went to China the first time, I really hadn't done any research on it. So I turned up and was kind of expecting to see more pagodas and other bits and pieces. That wasn't the China that greeted me. There was pagodas, and this, but a lot of it was very sort of probably the best way to describe it is square or rectangular shaped blocks of houses and, and apartments, more in a Russian style of architecture that were built to be economically constructed and all in a very regular grid. But also a very interesting scenario because the time I went there was 1997-98 and China was really at that stage, you know, people had been there for 10-15 years but it was starting to really open up and blossom. And I'd turn up, I'd walk down the street and you could see someone 50 metres away from you sort of staring at you, seeing a foreigner walking down their street and you could see them building up the courage just to say hello to you. And, you know, in those days, that was, if they were seen talking to a foreigner, that might also attract the attention of the Public Security Bureau at the time because it wasn't still that open that it is today. So... It was this interesting transition that I was just fortunate enough to live through where I went from a China that was fairly closed and difficult to move around in. I was in a city of 9 million people where there were three hotels registered for foreigners to live in. So that gives you a sort of a scale of of how people approached it. and, And in that city, there were 50 Western foreigners. There were 400 foreigners overall registered in that city. The other 350 were Japanese, Korean, Taiwanese, 50 Western foreigners. So that was quite an interesting experience and transition compared to the cosmopolitan Shanghai of today where, you know, you can pretty much have any type of food experiences, these sorts of things. You can get in any other city, London, New York, whatever. So this this transition of China moving through that phase was was one experience I was very lucky to enjoy. And that changed also the way it was to to run businesses where the opportunity to open up business sectors and develop them has increased as time has gone on, enabling people to to more easily access a very large market in China. But also equally you look at Vietnam, Cambodia and the areas around there and you know, Singapore has been there for, for a long time and Malaysia, these markets are, are quite open, but you see other markets such as Indonesia that are very rapidly growing as they modernize. So that experience of seeing the Asian market transition has been a fantastic growth phase that I've enjoyed. But in addition, if you want to establish there, the market is growing. The market has still a huge potential, especially in 
state-of-the-art things. So if I look at China today, they're already trialing automated cars in cities with driverless systems to bring people around, but also to move food vans, for example, around where you have a driverless food van, you go up and tap your phone on the buying cage and then choose which product you want and it delivers it out the side door. To uh, Shenzhen today, which is delivering products uh, Amazon style via drones. And when I say products, I'm even talking like delivering smoothies. Wow. Okay. So these transitions we see, and I expect to see AI and other advancements taking place more readily in the Asian market because the business community is more open to doing adventurous things and on a bigger scale. My biggest learning probably from going into the Asian market was you know, coming from a small country like Australia and going to somewhere like China or even you go into Malaysia and other countries. When they do something, they do it on a big scale. And it's often 10 times or, or larger than what you're used to doing. And then working with a lot of international biopharma companies versus working with the Chinese or Asian biopharma companies from Taiwan or Vietnam, when they invest, they invest with a, an oversized building, extra space, and their concept of business is, if I have the space, I can find something to put in it into that space and I can make that something and I can sell it. Whereas our Western companies come along and say, I'll only invest what I've got guaranteed return for. And I want to know that I've got that guaranteed return before I start spending the money on it. So it's a very opposite approach to business and investment in the, in the business sector. And I think if you're going into that market and you want to access that market, and I've heard others give the same advice, you have to be there. You can't do it from afar. You have to jump on a plane, you have to go and meet people, and you have to understand it, experience it, and, and integrate with it. I'm very glad we've got your experience and perspective on that particular topic, because I think there's so many learnings in there. For many of our listeners, not just about doing business in Asia, but doing business anywhere globally, and that importance in our sector, which is high value, complex, highly regulated, that that human connection piece and being present you know, locally is just so so important. And I'm conscious we only have about five minutes left, Gordon. So I wanted to kind of switch lane and look at the future. And you said, you know, earlier on, we talked a little bit about the types of facilities and uh, constructions that you're involved with in particular. You know, you talked about cell and gene therapies and advanced therapies and more modern modalities that no doubt require a slightly more complex and different view on kind of the more traditional small molecule tableting facilities. So talk us through how your job and your profession has evolved at the same time as the demand for these kind of new modalities, which are a different different kind of animal altogether. Like how has that impacted you guys in terms of how you guys go about thinking about these projects? And then also just, I suppose, one eye on the future of how you think things will change and evolve and any trends that you see on the horizon that uh, would be of interest to our listener. Look, I think this is a very exciting area, especially the cell and gene therapy is, for those who don't know about it, is, is, a, is about new treatments 
for cancers, which today we really don't have pure treatments for cancers. We kind of knock them on the head with chemotherapy uh, and I'm of the age where I've got a lot of friends who are being treated for cancer. I'm fortunate enough not to have been impacted yet. But the exciting part for me is the cell and gene therapies are very much targeting the cancer and eliminating it. It's still the early days in all of these treatments, but there's hundreds of treatments being researched out there. And it's, it's a really positive field to be involved in. And as I said before, the exciting part for me is when I go into these and do a feasibility study or a concept design, I have to really sit with the scientists and the people who have developed these products, learn and understand how they do it on a benchtop, for example, and then work out how, we, how would we translate that benchtop without, with my team, how will we translate that benchtop production facility into a large-scale production facility that may be doing you know, thousands of batches or hundreds of thousands of batches of product to treat people. And the cell and gene therapy is, is for me the most interesting one because it's required to be very typically close to the point of use or where the patient is. So you can't really just manufacture somewhere in the world and send it out. And it's, it's aligned directly today with that patient's blood or that patient's T-cells. So you have to extract from the patient the core to their treatment, process it, and then give it back to them. And you have a very limited time frame in which to do that uh, safely. And you have to be careful because today they're often cancer patients, so they're already at a, a critical phase in their treatment. Now, this uh, equipment today takes up a room that could be anywhere from about three meters by five meters but like everything else this equipment is shrinking and getting more complex and the current target today is to have closed processing equipment so what i expect to see is that in five or ten years time is maybe we walk into a hospital and there's going to be this little mini manufacturing suite in there which is manufacturing anti-cancer products and it'll look like a series of uh, microwave ovens just stacked side by side and on top of each other where you insert a patient's sample in there, their T-cells in there, and it gets processed by the machine and out comes your injection after a period of time ready to give to the patient. We're already doing this today with doing small compounding facilities within hospitals so that can treat very small regional groups of patients with very specific needs, but this is taking it really to a next level. And I think this is quite an exciting phase. For me, it's the most fascinating part of the industry. And I think seeing where the new high value products are coming out, that's this enormous change, enormous divergence and paradigm that's coming to the industry. And I know you've interviewed quite a few people on this, but I find it just a really exciting area. No, it, it is, and I wanted to, I suppose, underline the point you made around the impact of these products for patients all over the world and how exciting that is. And uh, we're certainly grateful for businesses like yours that help bring these, give us the infrastructure to bring these products to life. And also, I've got a wry smile on my face as I listen to you kind of give us a glimpse. And I'm sure we're all envisaging, you know, my wife is a doctor in a hospital and you know, I'm envisaging her being able to go to the next room and be able to get the product out of a microwave, so to speak, and be able to administer that to their patient. It's, it's, 
And it's funny because it really aligns with some of how you talked about Asia before and the advancements in technology and convenience, if you like, in Asia. And you could see that being a glimpse in the future. And before you go, Gordon, I had one final question, which um, I'm kicking myself that I should have asked you this earlier. My assumption would be that your business is a business that isn't just the biopharma companies, but potentially also the contract manufacturing companies or the CDMOs as well. Is that is that correct or is that not the case? Yes, no, it's very much the case. And we do work with both groups. And the CDMOs obviously are more and more becoming a, a manufacturing support for all of the biopharma companies as they roll out different products. On that specific point then, which is, thank you for clarifying that. So the way I look at it is, you know, if you have a, a biopharma company that's coming direct to you guys and pretty sure about the scale and forecast potential of a product, whether it's, you know, in the pipeline or you know, late late phase or commercial versus say a CDMO, which is looking to manufacture multiple mod- modalities different levels of toxicity, different batch sizes. So a much more uh, flexible, adaptable requirement. Is, is that something that you're seeing more, which is CDMO in particular is looking for something which is a much more agile setup than maybe 20 years ago? Yep. And look, we've developed, funnily enough, a product. We've had products over the year that we've made a- and sold as a contracting or manufacturing company for modular clean rooms. What we see today is that this demand on modular clean rooms is increasing, especially through the phase of COVID. We saw people wanting to be able to build clean rooms all over the place, but we have been working for several years on a new modular clean room. And the pure focus for that is to enable people to put a small clean room in place and by modules, almost like a Lego brick system, just expand that clean room as they need. So we've developed a product called ExiCell, which we use, and it's essentially 9.6 by 2.4 meters, but they're essentially each piece is self-contained and can manage by itself, or you can basically clip them together and expand them, open them up, set them at different height levels for different products, set them for different treatment of air quality, whether it's different manufacturing grades, or as you said, you know, different toxicity sub-products or BSL-2. So these systems that we develop, we see a a much more rapid need for speed in getting these systems in place and flexibility in how they're used going into the future. Mm. So these drivers in the market we see are going to continue. And, you know, as I mentioned before, Western companies want to delay sometimes the investment. Asian companies want it to be able to be implemented faster. (laughs) So it fits for both of them, but because of a different sort of driving need in their DNA. Thank you for that final point. And I think it's a great place to end today's interview, Gordon. And uh, yeah, I'm really pleased you were able to come on the podcast and share your experiences of you know your time living and working in Asia and obviously the role that you do and the areas of expertise that you bring to the table. So thank you for being a guest on Molecule to Market. Fantastic, Raman. Thank you very much. It's been an honor to be able to talk with you. So there you have it, Mr. Gordon Nicholson. Uh, what a likable, humble, calm, and just uh, you know, very pragmatic chap with uh, an incredible amount of experience. So some of the takeaways from today's episode for me, 
I think there's lots of learnings in there for any of you that are in a kind of technical role that want to evolve into something more commercial. We've seen that journey time and time again on the podcast. And his uh, journey was particularly interesting because it ended up with Gordon leading and growing a team in Asia. Um, I really found the part in today's podcast where he talks about breaking down silos, the lessons from sport and going back to basics in terms of dealing with humans uh, during his time at Nova Nordisk Engineering. Really fascinating and so simple and things that we can all take in our business to help deal with, with such challenges. You know, someone that's got one eye on Asia and how we can do more business in Asia. Uh, I think his insights and experience of spending half of his uh, lifetime living and working in Asia and you know, across Thailand and China and, and Singapore were, were fascinating and some some super stuff there for us to all take away if that's in your plans uh, in the next few years. And I suppose on today's day-to-day role in terms of, you know, designing facilities for tomorrow, uh, you can imagine and you hear that uh, some of the complexities uh, that have evolved with the new types of modalities and uh, you know and, and therapies that we're looking at, whether it be advanced therapies or cell and gene therapy or biologics or you know what that means for these guys in terms of providing uh, both CDMOs and biopharma companies with uh, the support for designing and you know constructing flexible facilities that you know work for these new types of products uh, and i particularly like towards the back end uh, that kind of gl- glimpse into the future of how you know cell gene therapies might be administered in a safe and speedy manner in like hospitals it really was uh, a, an interesting kind of picture that gordon painted of, of what could happen in the future so i really hope you t- enjoyed today's episode thanks always for for listening and you know, thanks to my team for helping me put this together. And if you haven't already, give us a nice rating on the App Store and share this wonderful episode with a colleague or an industry contact. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon wherever you like to listen and do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically and please get in touch via our website at molecule to market pod or via linkedin or twitter we love to hear from you so if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on molecule to market then please let us know we'll see you very soon listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.